This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. I'm here with my colleague at the Bureau, Paul Hartfield, and a very, very special guest. It's the first and possibly the only time that we've had a member of royalty join us here at the Bureau. And you'll find out why in a few moments. The Bureau is dedicated to recollecting or collecting forgotten, half-remembered, lost, or just rare countercultural stories. We're interested in narratives of resistance where individuals have stood against the establishment and small things have fought big things. Well, this is a shorter episode than usual, and that's appropriate because it's an episode about small things. Small countries, in fact. Micronations. What is a micronation? Well, if you look up on Wikipedia, uh, a micronation is defined, I suppose, as a political entity whose members claim they belong to an independent nation or sovereign state, lacking legal recognition by world governments. Most are very small, but range in size from a single square foot, that is small, to millions of square feet. They're usually the outgrowth or the project of a single individual. Now, there are various micronations around the world, and they've been around really for at least for the last 50 years. And a few of them uh, I'm going to list here. There is Operation Atlantis, an early 1970s New York-based libertarian group, built a concrete-hulled ship called Freedom, which they sailed to the Caribbean intending to permanently anchor it as their territory. But unfortunately, it sank in a hurricane. Oops. There's the Republic of Minerva, another libertarian project that succeeded in building a small man-made island on the Minerva Reefs, south of Fiji in 1972, before being invaded by troops from Tonga, who annexed it before destroying the island. Dang. What about the Republic of Rose Island, an artificial island constructed in 1968 by Italian architect Giorgio Rosa in the Adriatic Sea? It was built originally as a tourist attraction, but soon after it was finished, Rosa declared it as an independent sovereign state. The Italian Navy promptly dynamited it the following year. That sucks. There is the global country of world peace. There is Asgardia. There's the Free Republic of Liberland, founded in 2015. It claims a small parcel of land between Croatia and Serbia. Uh, some of the land is claimed by both countries, and other pits are claimed by neither. Free Republic of Liberland has established formal relations with Somaliland. That sounds hopeful. What about the Principality of Hutt River, a farm in Western Australia which claims to have succeeded from Australia to become an independent principality? I like this one, the Crown Dependency of Forvik, which is an island in Shetland, currently recognised as part of the UK, but Stuart Hill claims that independence comes from an arrangement struck in 1468 between King Christian I of Denmark and Scotland's James III, whereby Christian pawned the Shetland Islands to James in order to raise money for his daughter's dowry. Stuart Hill claims that the dowry was never paid, therefore it's not part of the UK, and should be a crown dependency like the Isle of Man. He's also encouraged the rest of Shetland to declare independence. The list goes on. But really, we're here today to talk about a particular small country, a micronation not too far away from here, actually. Um, and in some ways, it's one of the most well-established micronations in the world, as you'll find out, I think. And that is the Principality 
of Sealand. It's a micronation that claims Ruff's Tower, an offshore platform in the North Sea, approximately 12 kilometres off the coast of Suffolk as its territory. Ruff's Tower is a disused Monsal Sea Fort, originally built as an anti-aircraft gun platform by the British during the Second World War. Since 1967, it's been occupied by a family and the associates of a certain Paddy Roy Bates, once a major in the British Army, who claimed that it's an independent sovereign state. And we are very pleased that today, with us here at the Bureau of Lost Culture, we have Paddy's son, Prince Michael of Sealand. Welcome, Prince Michael. Hello, thank you for inviting me. No. Is it okay to call you Michael from now on? Call me whatever you like. Okay, good. <laughs> Michael, listen, welcome. Um, for anybody who doesn't know about Sealand, could you just tell the story of the past uh, briefly about what it is and how it came about? Well, I suppose it all began back in the 19, early 1960s when my father got involved with the, the phenomenon as, known as pirate radio. Uh, these were radio stations offshore on either ships or some of the, some of the stations broadcast from the old wartime fortresses that were put across the entrance of the Thames to defend against the German bombers that were pulling the Thames up to London to bomb London. Uh, some of them were army forts and set out like a like an uh, anti-aircraft battery on shore, and some were naval forts uh, ma manned by the navy and the marines, uh, and they were further a bit further offshore. Uh, my father had one, took over one of these forts and put Radio Essex on the air, um, and then the government brought in the Marine Offences Act, which uh, effectively closed him down. It made it illegal to not just to broadcast, but to to work for them, to be a disc jockey, a DJ on the stations, to, to supply them with fuel or food, or even have a pay for advertising. So it put him out of business. So he looked for a better jurisdiction to reopen his radio station, and he came across the Ruffs Towers, which is off Harwich, off Harwich and Felixstowe, on the Suffolk coast, further, much further out to sea than the other one. Uh, so Christmas Eve, 1966. I went out with him, I was about, what was I, 14 years old, um, and took it over. And uh, uh, anyway, so he took all his all his staff and his DJs and his transmitters and generators and everything there. Uh, but in the meantime, he had the bizarre idea of declaring independence. Um, he decided, it was just the same time when Ian Smith was uh, performing with Rhodesia and, and uh, declaring UDI. Mm -hmm. And Harold Wilson was doing regular trips down to Rhodesia and having meetings with him. And in fact, there's a very famous, famous to us anyway, cartoon in the Sun, and there's a, and it's uh, it's meant it's meant to depict my mother, my father, myself, and my sister, very rough-looking motley crew, I have to say, <laughs> in the cartoon, leaning over the side of of the fort with a shotgun, and there's a fellow in a, in a dinghy and a skiff beneath. And my mother turns to my father and says, he says his name's Smith and wants to know how we got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> I have it on my wall at home. It's quite, quite a nice little thing. Uh, you can't. Well, I mean, I, uh, you know, just to go back a little bit, what was it like for you being a 14-year-old embarking on that sort of adventure? It's like a boy's own adventure. I mean, your father sounds like this extraordinary character. Actually, maybe you could, first of all, just tell us a little bit about your dad because he sounds like an amazing person. Well, my, my father made his way down to the Spanish Civil War you know, prior to the, the world wars and everything else. And I think he ended up fighting on both sides. He was there for the adventure, not for a cause. Uh, 
and eventually he was captured and deported, I think, back to the UK, or to Gibraltar, as it happens. Um, but he was an interesting character. I mean, he actually uh, said to me many times that he enjoyed the war. It's not a politically correct thing to say, but he was an adventurer, you know, and and uh, and uh, and a risk taker. So, I mean, he got he was sitting on a rock in in Iraq in the army. And uh, there's two snakes. He's watching these two snakes in his board, and he starts throwing stones at the at the snakes. And he didn't realise at the time they were actually copulating snakes. <laughs> it must be snake breeding season or something. So one one of these snakes flashed across and bit him on the on his thigh. And I remember as a boy, he still had this quite big scar on his mm. thigh where he carved it open with a razor blade and drunk a bottle of whiskey. All the things you're really not meant to do. But having said that, I still use the phrase he used in later life, and that was. Always keep a bottle of whiskey in the house, son, because you never quite know when you might get bitten by a snake. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So as, as a 14-year-old uh, boy, you presumably used to his adventuring ways by then, but that's quite something if your dad says to you, look, to you and your sister and your mum, come on, get together. We're going to take off to this fort. And you, you said you took it over. Come in, elaborate on that. What does it mean to take over a fort? Well, it, it was Christmas Eve 1966, and... Uh, uh, Radio Caroline actually had some people on this fort and uh, it was dark and there was no, no power out in this thing and there was a bit of string hanging down from the, from one of the lower landing stages and one of my fellows managed to climb up it and throw the rope ladder down and we all climbed up it and uh, there was two fellows on there from Radio Caroline. Uh, one had an air rifle I remember and uh, I don't know what the other one had but uh, our, one of our fellows came up behind him and took the rifle off. There was no violence involved mm. at all. You said, pack your bags, and we, we took them ashore to, to Harwich the next day. After that, Radio Caroline and various thugs from London were sent out there, I suppose sponsored by Caroline. There was, I think, as many as seven different boarding parties attempted. Uh, and I was, as I say, I was 14 years old, and... Um, I was making up Molotov cocktails and, and all sorts of devices, to, you know, swinging on ropes and that if someone opened the door, <laughs> there'd be balanced oxygen bottles all around the rail, so if there was a boat underneath, we could just tip them over the side, um, you know. I mean, it's it's obviously, it was a different time, I mean, the 1960s and stuff like that, but I, even at the time, surely you must have been thinking... This is like the Wild West or something, wasn't it? Well, it, but it was like the Wild West, and it, it's actually been described like that a little bit in the past, in so much as you couldn't just pick up the phone. Well, there wasn't a phone anyway, and if there was, you couldn't pick up the phone and call the police, you know, like if you didn't look after yourself. Like the Wild West, when they moved towards the West, they, they had to police themselves, you know, and that's, that's, it was exactly like that. So what was it like for you? I mean, what did it feel like? Was it exciting, frightening, you know? Oh, it was exciting. It was exciting. I mean, we were... We were uh, we were threatened by the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy were going to come. Harold Wilson had a had a meeting in Ten Downing Street, and he invited the Navy, the uh, Air Force, and the and the Army. And he said, "Look, we think we might have the Cuba of, uh, another Cuba off the east coast of England. Here. What are we going to do about it? Um, you know, who's going to go and take it over?" Uh, so they went away and came back, and obviously the Navy said, well, we've got the Marines and everything. He said, we're, we're geared up to do it, we can do it. But uh, there was a bit of a problem. He said, I think we might lose some lives here on, on behalf of either the Bates family, you know, my family, or the services. Wilson said, well, why, why is that? He said, well, look, and they showed him a picture, and down the side of the fortress, I had, I'd found this old tin of dried-up paint and, a, and an old dried-up paintbrush, and I wrote, danger, 10,000 volts. <laughs> And uh, so I held back the power of the empire <laughs> with, a, with a paintbrush and an old Love paintbrush it. and a bit of paint. So that, Wilson said, well, I'm not going to uh, countenance people getting mm. killed. And, and, uh, and so, they, so they then tried 
a touch of subterfuge, and they sent two policemen out there. I thought they were. I thought they were ordinary policemen. It turns out they were military policemen, but they had the flat hats like in those days. A senior officer used to wear a flat hat, not the silly pointy one that the others used to wear. Um, and they couldn't climb the ladder and uh, the rope ladder. Uh, it's all in my book. But they, they struggled to try and climb them. We invited them up to talk to them. My mother, my mother and I were out there, and, uh, and I was only 14. But they couldn't climb the ladder, so I went down and talked to them on the boat, you know, and... And uh, your father has sold us the fortress, and and uh, you know he wants you to let uh, some marines up there, and and this and that, and it went on for quite a long while. And I said, well, just bring my dad back out, you know. And uh, I was only fourteen, and he, said, he turned to the skipper, the, the policeman. He said, I said, he said it'll be dark then. He said, and he said, skipper, you can't bring this boat in here underneath this mm. fortress in the dark, can you? And he said, oh no. I said, well, and I suggest you change your job then because I can do it. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was, it was a great adventure. And just to create a picture for anybody listening, Sealand is on something called Fort Ruff, which is one of uh, these World War II forts that were built. It's like a two huge concrete cylinders standing upright in the North Sea off the coast of Suffolk in the UK. And on top of those two huge concrete cylinders, there's a platform, something like a an oil rig a little bit, I guess. And uh, on top of that, there's some buildings. And now there's a helipad there. Uh, in the Second World War, there would have been lots of weapons and guns and possibly radar and stuff. And it was one of these forts that were built in around about 1942 out in international waters. So, Michael, from what I understand is that it was always... Its ownership was always up for debate, right? Well, no, but it wasn't up for debate. Obviously, obviously, the government and governments employ a lot of uh, legal experts, and mm. who pretty much the government said to them, "Look, we want you to find it, work it this way," you know. Uh, and the government did try to claim it as their own. But in fact, the the reality of the situation was, it was built during a time of war. It was built illegally during a time of war in international waters. Nobody gave a damn right. who built it or what it was it. But where they where the British government fell down was they abandoned it in international waters. Mm. I mean, the, at the time, the, the the territory limits were three miles, which was a distance you could fire a cannonball and penetrate the foot of oak. In other words, the side, side of a mm. warship. And so, you know, controllable territory. Um, so once you'd claimed it, or once, you'd it, once your family claimed it, and it became yours... And then just tell us what happened next. So how much time are you spending there and what sort of things were you doing there and, you know, until, until it became the Principality of Sealand? Well, I, I, I was away at boarding school in North Wales at the time. And then I went, I went out there with my father. Uh, things were difficult financially because um, uh, the station had been closed down and, you know, there was, there was no money about it. And, uh, and the staff were all giving up and everything else. And so I put my hand up on the boat out there one day. Dad, I'll go up there and, and, and help look after it. I thought six weeks of adventure would be a bit of fun, you know. But I didn't realise it was nearly 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I wouldn't have done it, but... but so, I, I mean, I, I would spend as much as six months out there at a right. time sometimes, you know, like we lived out there. And what was life like that, a typical day? It was pretty tough at first because there was no generators working. It was just mm. like, well, we went from candles to hurricane lamps to tilly lamps to generators, you know, like we worked up the ladder. And as I said, there was no money to finance mm. things. The other strange thing that people 
might find hard to understand these days. There was no communication. There were no mobile phones or anything. The boat would go away, and, and my dad would say, or whoever was on the boat would say, I see him be back in two weeks' time. And two weeks later, he'd be staring off to the southwest with a pair of binoculars, hoping the boat mm. would appear, and it wouldn't appear for another two weeks. Which, looking back, probably quite frustrating. Yeah, and, but I mean, also, you'd be stocked up with food and enough water, yeah. fresh water, or food, and whatever. Well, you we used to have to drag water out then. The water, you wouldn't believe. I mean, it's such a heavy commodity to drag up a mm. seawall down a load of steps along a concrete hard and loading a dinghy and around the boat and then one day we thought hang on why don't we collect the rainwater you know and uh, you get a good old flash flood and you put thousands of gallons in tanks mm. and uh well tell us about the weather what was that like obviously you see all sorts of weather i mean uh, originally it was only small portholes i mean then we got double glazed windows quite big double glazed windows fantastic for watching the weather through and during the storms but obviously we were, we were, we were marooned when the weather was bad you know mm. And then, so, and then, how did it evolve? Or, the, you know, the notion of Sealand as a, as it's, as a as a micro nation, as a principality. You know, when did that start to really take shape? And, and then you started, you know, all the things that happened next, which is well, we 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 declared independence on September the second, nineteen sixty-seven. Mm. We raised the flag that we designed and and uh, announced as well. We had the Sunday newspapers out there and people, you know, um, uh, running the story. Um, and it just went on from there. As I say, in those days, there was no communication, so it was hard for the rest of the world to get in touch with us and vice versa. Now, we, obviously, we have internet and everything out there, but um, we just pushed ahead. We had stamps made and coins, and, and uh, but it was always also very difficult because you'd, you'd get some silver coins made, and I mean, we had some made in the Mexican mint, and actually, the fellow that, that did the deal with my father, and that was actually very good to his word and and did pay what he agreed to pay but over the years many people have not paid what they you know what, mm. what the contract said i mean to this day you can buy orca coins like orca whale coins and the fella in in in, uh, in florida was meant to with a mint uh was meant to pay x amount to the to whales x amount to us and obviously x amount himself he'd never paid a penny to anybody but this you can still see them out there mm. so now we only ever market stuff that goes through our own online shop under our own control and we and we make enough to finance what we do out there now. And then in the 1970s, you started issuing passports as well, didn't yeah. you? And you issued hundreds yeah. of thousands of passports. And you know, what, what, why were people buying them? Were people buying them as a sort of souvenir, or were they buying them because... It... Well, funny enough, my son was just telling me last night that he's watching uh, there's a, on Netflix or something about the, the murder of Versace. And, and the fellow that killed Versace had a Sealand passport, I believe. Uh, either either he had one or he ended up, the police caught him on a houseboat. It might be this, the police caught him on a houseboat and uh, and the guy that owned the houseboat had a Sealand passport. But we, we didn't issue actually an awful lot, although there were a lot of fake ones issued. Uh, I, and I can think to this, at, at right now, in this day and age, why would you want a Sealand passport? Well, if I was on a, an aeroplane and some nasty terrorists got on it and took it over and they started separating all the different nationalities and I had an American passport, it would be the first passport I would eat, not the sea now. Yeah. Show one of these and you'd be one. fine, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then time goes on, 70s gone, 80s gone. There was lots of events happening and stuff. Various people attack yeah. the fort, don't they? They yeah. try and take it from you. I mean, tell us, yeah. Can you tell us about that, a little bit about that? Uh, 1978, there was a... Uh, the probably the worst thing that's ever happened out there. I was there on my own. My father was uh, in Austria with my mother. Um, 
having a business meeting with a consortium of Dutch and Germans um, who would want to come in and raise a small island, a leisure island, and I think a casino and, and that sort of carry on. And my father didn't, didn't come to, couldn't come to an agreement with them. And again, it was before the times of mobile phones and communications, so I was pretty much out of touch out there. And uh, this helicopter turns up, the Dutch National Airline, KLM, big blue helicopter turns up and and uh, with a film crew on it and a, and a couple of other guys. They couldn't land because there's masts on the top to stop helicopters landing. But this fellow came down on a winch wire. They lowered him down, who I'd recognised as a, a German tax consultant I'd met once before uh, with my father and another fellow. And I ended up getting being locked up in this steel room, but it was basically a steel room, the living room out there, and it just had a tiny small porthole. And I was locked up in there for about four days, I think, with no food or water. They let me out at one point and we ended up fighting and, and, uh, and I ended up being tied up, my elbows tied together, my hands, my knees. They were going to throw me over the side. <laughs> Interesting times. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And, and then they, they, I was locked up in this room and then a Dutch trawler turns up and uh, with a load of reinforcements and, um, and they offered that I could stay there, be taken to England by the boat or taken to Holland. I said, well, I'll stay here. Uh, and then... The people that had been out there with me said to the new, the new guys, "Look, if he stays, here, you've got to lock him back in the room because he's too dangerous to allow out." Because I'd been fighting with him, so um, I said, "Okay, then take me to England." The skipper, the trawler, wouldn't take me to England because he didn't want to be arrested for kidnapping. Uh, so I ended up going to Holland, landed illegally at Scavenier with no passport, managed to get back to England. A couple of days later, I met my father. Uh, we were going to go out in a in a, a rigid inflatable we had and and climb like, with a hook ladder, climb up the outside. But the weather was bad, and uh, a German associate of ours who was mixing with the other people now as well, phoned me up and he said, look, he said, they're gonna reinforce with 10 ex-Belgian paratroopers with those submachine guns. He said, and that's in two days time, if you don't do it now, you'll never get it back. And I remember saying to him, well, and my father put me on the phone to talk to him. I remember saying to him, uh, well, if it goes that way, I'll just swim a, swim a bloody great bomb underneath it and blow it up. I said, but I'm not going to you know, leave it the way it is. And we phoned a friend of ours up, John Crutzen, who had a local helicopter company, and he had flown in several James Bond films from terrific pilot. He flew, he flew, he flew in 633 Squadron and I think the dam bus and wow. all that stuff. And he was a stunt pilot. And uh, he, no talk of money, and he said, no, of course, I'll, I'll do it for you. So we took the seats out of the helicopter and, um, where was it, uh, Southland Airport, early hours of the morning, three o'clock in the morning, that was it, three o'clock in the morning, Southland Airport, climbed over the barbed wire perimeter fence and and uh, attached ropes to the, the airframe and everything else, took the doors off it and uh, he got on the radio, Southend Tower, we're going to take dawn shots of sea land <laughs> uh, and off we went and, uh, and we got there just just as it was breaking daylight and I could see this yellow something strange on deck. We were flying a metre above the sea, standing outside on the skids, and I see this yellow thing on deck and it's uh, one of the Germans in a yellow oil skin and he's sleeping in a chair, he's meant to be keeping watch. And the first thing he saw was the helicopter appear from underneath the platform and he said it frightened the shit out of him. And, uh, and uh, the, the fellow put the helicopter in over the top, the pilot, and we slid down ropes. And they were running out the building. I was the first one down, and they were running out the building below us. They were armed. So what happened next? We didn't shoot anybody. Uh, 
I jumped off the... <laughs> I, I was the first one down, and I collapsed the mast so that the helicopter could land. I jumped off the top of the... Well, it's a helideck now. I suppose it's about 10 or 12 feet high, higher than the rest of it. And I had to jump out over a water tank down. I had a sort of shotgun in my hand, and, and as I hit the deck, the, shot, the shotgun went off, and everybody stuck their hands up in the air. And? <laughs> oh, no, no, I didn't kill any of them. I nearly committed patricide right. my dad came round the corner oh, as well, but we got away with it all and that was okay. So we locked them all up in a, in a magazine down the bottom of the tower, which is which was quite an interesting place to be locked up because there's a, there's a valve so you can flood it in case of... Case right. of thing but happens. I mean, the sort of joking aside, the, the, the atmosphere must have been incredibly tense, right? Incredibly I mean, you've tense, got guns, yeah. you've got, you know, Enmity, you know, they've mistreated you. I mean, you know, you, you talked about it quite lightly, but they basically kidnapped you. They locked you up in, in a room for four days, yeah. dumped you in Holland. I mean, it's quite serious stuff, my, isn't my it? My father was, I mean, if the man had been out there, and when they tied me up, when I'd been fighting, when they tied me up, they tied my hands up so tight, and they, and they threw me back in the room, and they didn't undo my hands, and my hands had no feeling for days afterwards. Right. And my dad would have, he did tell me afterwards if that man had been there, I'd have smashed his hands up with a club hammer, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was very serious stuff. So, okay, you've taken them prisoner, retaken them prisoner, and then what happened? Uh, well, uh, the the German government went to the British government and said, do something, you know, you're the nearest neighbours. And the British government said, there's nothing we can and we'll do. It's nothing to do with us. And uh, so the we ended up releasing the... the the heavies, you know, the, mm -hmm. the hard men. But we kept one of these guys was a was a German lawyer, and he had a sealant passport. He committed treason, so we we held a uh, a court case, you know, and we had some journalists there and everything to witness it, make sure it went correctly. I think we we didn't hang him or anything like that. We <laughs> we fined him, and of course, he, we didn't get the money either. We ended up giving him money when we did eventually put him away. But the the interesting part of that story was we had him there for about six weeks, I suppose, and. Uh, originally, obviously, we locked him up, and then after a couple of days, it was a bit like this to talk about in the war, like they capture the German prisoners and they start handing photographs of their wives and children. And after a couple of days, he was living with us and everything. He was frightened that we were going to murder him. We couldn't be more open. I mean, we were doing 24-hour-a-day watches, mm. like three hours on, three hours off, and he'd asked to go with me, just with me, because he felt so open, like when they were doing the watches in the middle of the night. you know. And uh, But anyway, so the... Uh, uh, bond demands of a release of Herr Gernot Putz and all that was bandied about and eventually the, the German the, the chief legal advisor to the German embassy in London uh, came out to talk to us and so uh, one, of, one of the things that's happened isn't it is that your case for Sealand being an actual state which should be recognised is that it's been you've communicated and had representation from yeah. the German government through a diplomat therefore you've been given some sort of diplomatic it was recognition it's de facto recognition yeah mm. Yeah, without a doubt. So was that, after that uh, finished, Michael, I mean, has there been any sort of serious, you know, assaults on Sealand since, or was that, no. the most, that was the most serious? So basically, you give a very strong signal out, this is ours, yeah. and this is what happens if you're trying to take yeah. it off us, right? I mean, when, when we, you know, you like when we did the helicopter assault, to show you how, how single-track-minded we were, it never even occurred to us to wear life jackets sliding down a rope 100 foot above the sea out of a helicopter in a gale of wind. Never occurred to us to wear a life jacket. I mean, we get in a boat these days to do things. Of course, we should put a life jacket on, don't you, like in the normal run of things. But not when you've got a shotgun hanging around your neck. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to say sort of life, normal life resumed itself, but it's not a very normal life, is it? So, 
Um, so after that, really, um, and of course, the, I suppose the next big thing that happens is that the British territorial waters are expanded yeah. beyond sea land, at mm. which point the British government is kind of saying, actually, you, we own you, or you're, you're part we, of we, us. We uh, extended our waters to 12 miles the day before, and uh, and like with the Channel Islands, that when they're a bit near France, they, they, they have a, a median line, you know. Right. So what is currently your sort of relationship with the British authorities? We don't really bother much with them and they don't really bother much with us. If they want to come and visit, we'll get the best China out. But, you know... I love it. As a result of this, I was just looking into, you know, what it means to be a principality. I mean, Isle of Man is a self-governing British Crown dependency, whatever that is, right? Gibraltar, British Overseas Territory. The Vatican is an independent city-state. Monaco, Liechtenstein, they're principalities. They're microstates as well. So you're basically saying we're like Liechtenstein or Malta or one of those Yeah, places. I mean, they're, 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 the phrase micro microstate really is a, it, I think is a phrase brought out about us, you know, and mm. I know you, you expanded about a lot of these days. But... Um, uh, but yeah, there was. I mean, the, you know, the, the world was. I mean, we've been we've been in existence longer than Dubai. I mean, we got engaged in the in the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, right, in the restaurant there, highest restaurant in the world. But I said, I said, Sealand's been in existence longer than Dubai has been a been a state. We have had we have had the Sealand flag carried the top of Mount Everest. I've got Kenton calls down there holding it. You know. Um, well, and it is now, you know, I mean, recognised, I suppose, as being, you know, the microstate, the smallest country in the world, some yeah. people call it and stuff. So, in a strange way, you've almost become respectable, Michael. I think that's probably what happens, isn't it? I know my dad died in 2012, and he died in the October, and at the end of the year, the the New York Times had a colour supplement, the, the 20 of the most interesting people that, that mm. have died this year. And I think number number four was Neil Armstrong, the first man on the on the moon, and number five was my dad. <laughs> and there's a, and there's an amazing and they all had different pictures and things. And for him, they did a a cartoon, uh, and it was drawn by the the Batman cartoon. It's all those <laughs> bright reds and blacks. And, all, and I've got it on my wall at home. It's fantastic. I mean, and it is the the invasion of Sealand and the, how we took mm. it back. And it's really cool. Amazing, you know? amazing, yeah. amazing. And then of course, you know, your dad died and your mum died few years ago as well, yeah. didn't she? And then, yeah. you know, you became Prince Regent, effectively yeah. a ruler. So where does that leave you now? For the future, I mean, what's what's the state of Sealand now? And, you know, where are you at? And what are your plans for the future? Well, our plans are and always have been to, to eventually try and raise some land. Mm. Uh, and we come to time we have to do something like, like that. I mean, my, my sons, uh, James and Liam, Liam's 30 and James is 32 and a million percent involved with everything. And I have two grandsons, Freddie and Harry, as well, so I'm sure they'll be carrying on with it. But, uh, you know. When you say raise some land, what does that mean? Um, basically, build a coffer dam and, and pump sand into it, you know, and uh, it's all tried and tested technology. So Sealand becomes an island then? Yeah, it becomes a, a bit yeah, more yeah. of an island instead I mean, it, of just a how, fortress. How big is the water around Sealand? It's only 10 metres. Is it? Yeah. It's on a bank, so. I mean, that's interesting itself, isn't it? Because, of course, in all this, you know, the, the, the definition in the international law, it's, it says the, the um, Montevideo Convention, uh, you know, denies that artificial islands can be states. But, in fact, that's crazy because, in fact... Well, half um, of Dubai is an artificial exactly. island, Exactly. And Dubai's, and the, China, the Chinese are now building artificial yeah. islands and stuff as well, aren't they? So Plus you're uh, working backwards, aren't you? You already exist yeah. and you're just extending, so yeah. it's got to work. Right, so the plan would be to make the island of an island of Sealand, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and as time goes by, become more and more established. 
physically, the fort itself, I mean, built in the Second World War, I mean, is it structurally sound? Is it, is it going to... Yeah, it's structurally it... sound, but, I mean, obviously it's going to be a bit more feet now. Um, um, you know, like everything. But we do maintenance work and we, mm. you know, do as best as we can. How often do you go there now? Not very often these days, mainly with just journalists going out or something or some mm. special occasion going on. Um, when you're just about to get married to May, I mean, are you guys going to honeymoon on Sealand? <laughs> Absolutely bloody not. <laughs> I'm going to get told off for saying that now. <laughs> May. I think we might go where the sun's shining, I think. Um, okay, well, that's amazing. So, um, and I think Paul's got a few questions about uh, how you become how you become involved with Sealand. Yeah, well, obviously, I'd, I'd like to become a lord at some point. I've always uh, admired that. So how do we go about that? I'm just looking at your website now. Is it as simple as me just signing on? What do I need to do? Well, we, um, I mean, we support Sealand by, um, by we market lord and lady titles, which is a which is a, an ancient way of um, French, French kings used to market letters of mark market letters of mark. That's, that's good, isn't it? Uh, letters of mark um, for counts and countesses and comtes and that to finance their wars to, to pay for their mercenaries and their soldiers and, and everything else. So it's not it's not a, a new thing. Um, so we um, yeah we have a, we have quite a good online shop. So could we do like um, for example the British Museum that you could uh, buy one of the windows? at the top you could pay for that so could i get a square meter well, we of your new land we, we have what actually thought about that but we haven't if you can you can sorry you can get a, a, a square meter of sea land you can buy a, yeah. a bit of territory yeah. magic okay. here we go paul christmas oh, your dreams come true um but um listen you know michael long may sea land flourish and it's amazing so james and liam are going to have they got an official title? Uh, they're princes. They're princes. Princes, yeah. So they're planning to carry we, on. Yeah, we made it a principality, by the way, to simplify the law because mm. the uh, we were a small family in a great big world at the time, and and the prince's word is is the law. You know, the strong right mm. arm and all that kind of. Um, that's why we we did that. I mean, hopefully one day it would be nice to uh, run it by a senate. You know. Amazing. I should, we should also mention that you have done various things on the international stage, mainly sport, actually, haven't you? Could you talk a yeah, little bit about we, the Sealand and sport? We, we have um, just about every kind of athlete in the world, runners. We've even got a curling team, you know, curling? Yeah. And, uh, well, you would. You're a Scotsman, no? Eh? Oh, sort of. Uh, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> you come from that neck of the woods, don't we, Uh Skiers, jumpers, well, everything, all sorts. Right, so so and you've been always been very proactive in sort of establishing Sealand as a, as, as an in, with its international relations and mm. stuff, and it's become famous around the world. And you've got, yeah, so that's going to increase as you think as time goes by, particularly in the age of the internet, in a strange way. Actually, the internet yeah. opened the door totally to to mm. the world. You know, mm. uh, I remember my father did use publicity years ago to, to. I mean, at one point, the British government was spoiling all the when we were first out there, was spoiling all the stores. They'd open every tin of beans. They, you know, the customers would come down and they just they just make a nuisance of themselves and, and they tried. And I've, I, under the 30-year ruling, I've spent quite a lot of time in, in Kew Gardens at the Government Records Office there and I've seen some fascinating stuff, you know. Tell us about that, the 30-year rule. What's that? Well, the 30-year ruling is that... that uh, that things that were, that were uh, government papers that were hidden and secret, whatever, have to be revealed after 30 years. But so, funnily enough, that, that's, that sounds a great idea, but there's actually quite a few slips of paper in amongst the other papers saying destroyed and the date. So they were destroyed, actually destroyed them before they'd been allowed to get into the 30 year ruling thing. Um, but it's, it's a great thing because you can see, you know, uh, 
I mean, I, I even saw my, found my grandfather's, one of my grandfather's dog tags, you know, uh, in, a, in a file in Kew Gardens, you know, from the First World War. Um, there's, you know, so just to be able to read, I mean, that the, the attempt when the British government sent the policeman out there that we discussed earlier on on the, on the Navy boat, it's all there, you know. Mm. And it's actually not only is it there, but it's there from the point of view of the the guys that they sent out that obviously didn't, didn't want to make themselves look as stupid about the mere fact that these two James Bonds had been sent out there, basically, and couldn't climb a bloody rope ladder. I mean, what's that all about? You know, you'd, you'd think a Bond can do anything, can't he? Jump from building to building and, and all that, you know. So. No, I love it. Well, listen, long may Sealand's uh, sail on, as it were, but... And I'm guess I guess you are completely free of any concerns about Brexit. It's not going to affect Sealand in any way whatsoever, is it? Well, we never uh, were really for. I mean, it's a bit of a strange thing, isn't it? Because I remember as a boy, I suppose when when it was all going about, Britain wanted to join the common market, and it was, by the way, just a common market with nothing to do with you're going to have this kind of army and that kind of army. The whole idea of it was for free free trade, you know. Uh, I don't think anybody really understood it was going to end up governing your country and telling you how many immigrants you could let in or not let in or this, that and the other, you know. Um, but I do remember that uh, something that sticks in my craw a little bit was that, that in those days they didn't want us in, their, in, in the common market and it was President de Gaulle of France who it was always, I remember as a boy, front page on the paper, every time there was a conversation about it, no, de Gaulle said no and he, he stopped us joining it. Everybody thought he was a terrible man. Now I suppose he was still there. But of course, de Gaulle, de Gaulle spent his, his the war in London right. while we looked after him and liberated his country from. So that was all a bit strange, <laughs> wasn't it? But uh, people have very short memories, I suppose. But personally, I, I personally never really wanted to join it. It probably won't help me with the other business I have uh, leaving it. It might just make it a bit more complicated, and they might put trade tariffs on things. Uh, but but Sealand will be thankfully free of all such concerns. Um, Michael, your book Holding the Fort is an amazing story for these stories and lots more. And where can people find you in Sealand? Where's the best place to go? Well, uh, on the internet, sealandgov.org. Uh, there's a website there, and the online shop, and tells you all about the history of Sealand and and all sorts of bits and bobs. Good. Thank you very much, Prince Michael of Sealand. My pleasure, gentlemen. So there we have it. What about that for a story of nautical, piratical counterculture? A real David and Goliath story. Just the sort of story we love at the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can find out more about Sealand, as Michael said, at sealandgov.org. You can find out how to become a lord or a lady or a duke or a duchess of Sealand. Maybe own a little bit of Sealand yourself. All sorts of other wonderful things. And of course, check out Michael's brilliant book. You can find out more about us at bureauoflostculture.com. Lots more stories from the other side, stories of human resistance, rare, lost, half-remembered, unusual stories from the counterculture. We're going to finish with the national anthem of the Principality of Sealand, the smallest country in the world. Mm -hmm.